before we get rolling in Matthew 9, not Matthew 9, Mark 9, it's my brain, I don't know. Uh, thanks again to the tech team last week for um, adapting on the fly and uh, helping us figure out a way to um, not have someone fly in from with a sermon that they may not be ready to preach. Um, so thanks for that, and thanks to Matt again for... Um, uh, putting those two pieces together so that uh, the sermon online uh, sounds like, you know, it might actually be one piece of something. <laughs> Not interrupted by uh, technological blips that take place. We're in uh, a larger chunk of Mark today, 9 through 29. So uh, let's hear the word of our God. Uh 14 to 29. Yeah. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, I feel... Uh, woefully insufficient for these things. 
Uh, but you reminded Judah after the exile that the promise they received would not be accomplished by Judah's might, by Judah's power. That those things would be done by your spirit. And we need your spirit to illumine the scriptures, to apply them, to enable us to believe them, to sanctify us, to stir us to worship to this Jesus that we see here in this passage. May he do all these things and more through Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you ever feel stuck? Like, life doesn't change. That, that sin that you struggle with doesn't seem to go away. Or perhaps your circumstances, which seem so difficult to you, just linger on and on, stuck, helpless, impotent. Well, in this passage, Jesus is going to encounter some people who feel stuck, who feel helpless, who feel unable to change the things in their lives that matter the most to them. We've been talking about Jesus as he was on the top of the mountain, as he transformed, as he talked with Elijah and with Moses, and we we saw Jesus coming down the mountain with his three disciples and the discussion that they had about what just took place on the top of this mountain. But how are things going on going at the bottom of the mountain without Jesus? That's what Mark begins to tell us this morning. We're going to focus at first on 14 to 19. Jesus, Peter, John, and James have made their way down. They're going back to the house, as we see at the end of the passage. And what they see is rather disconcerting to them, because first they see a great crowd. They see a great crowd that is around the rest of the disciples. And within that great crowd and with the disciples, the scribes are arguing with them. This is exactly, well, I imagine what Jesus did not want to see when he returned. It's hard not to think of what happened in Exodus 32, when Moses has received the Ten Commandments and God says to him, you better go back down the mountain. Why, Lord? Why should I go back to the mountain? Because they've already fallen into apostasy. And Moses does not tell Joshua what's going on down there. And Joshua thinks it's the sound of victory, but instead it's the sound of singing and dancing and immorality that's taking place as they dance around the golden calf that poses as their God. Idolatry and apostasy. The scene that Jesus finds when he returns with his three disciples is one of utter chaos. No, there's not the immorality that we that, that Moses found, but still, utter chaos. It's reminiscent of a playground fight. 
You've got the group that surrounds the parties that are going at it, most likely cheering on one of their favorites in the midst of that playground battle. Some of us have been in the midst of those things. Some of us have been on the sidelines cheering on somebody. The disciples or the scribes. Not a physical combat, but certainly a verbal combat. You know, one of the things that I struggle with as a pastor is the reality, and I've mentioned this in previous occasions, the reality that sometimes I experience what goes on in the text that week. And so this word arguing pops up again. Jesus is going to ask them, and the NASB, for some reason, translates the same word in the same context in a different way, you know, discussing with them, arguing. This has been a week of arguments for me. Four different arguments that I can account for. Some of them lasting three days. This is not how I want to spend my time. And yet, that is what a lot of my time was this week. A church-related thing, a presbytery-related thing, an argument with one of my children about something, and then an argument with my wife as we walked around in in our morning walk. Arguments. Wearying the soul. Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about with them? And he's addressing not the crowd that has run over to Jesus, uh, but he's addressing the other nine disciples. Because the crowd wasn't arguing with the scribes, the disciples were arguing with the scribes. Were the scribes trying to gather evidence against Jesus? Is that why they were there in the first place and they think they've got it now? And when Jesus is addressing the nine, what happens is that a man from the crowd emerges. And this man is sort of the impetus for this struggle between the disciples and the scribes because he says, I brought my son to you. He has a mute spirit. And I wanted him to be wanted it to be cast out of him. And what he describes is what some of you might recognize as an epileptic seizure. My mouth doesn't want to work this morning. So in addition to making this boy mute, unable to communicate with those around them. He has these seizures from time to time. And some of you know, have loved ones who experience these sorts of things. They're incredibly scary. Uh, When I worked at the rescue mission in Orlando, there were a couple different guys who would go through these things, and uh, it was not something that you want to see, and it's not something you always know how to respond to. And so I can imagine that this father was incredibly troubled at the condition of his son. This text is not to indicate that if someone has such a seizure that they're obviously demonically 
possessed. That's not where we want to go with this. That's not what this is about. But rather that this spirit not only produced muteness with the boy, but also produced these symptoms that are remarkably like epileptic seizures. Still, I can't say the word. I, I should have practiced that word all week. Didn't know I'd struggle with that word. Okay. Scary. Especially since your son can't talk to you about it. Again, I asked your disciples to cast it out. They weren't able. Now, he had come believing that Jesus could. And Jesus isn't there. His disciples are there, and his disciples aren't able to do this. But they should have. If we remember Mark 6, verse 7, this is actually the second time, but we because we see it also in <clears throat> Mark 3. But the disciples, including those nine, had been given power, given authority to cast out demons. And so despite possessing the legitimate delegated authority from the Lord Jesus Christ, these guys couldn't do it. They failed. But here's the argument of the scribes. The reason that you failed to cast out this demon with the authority of Jesus' name is that there's no power in that name. And so they're taking the failure of the disciples and deputing that failure to Jesus. Do you see? And just as, as uh, any pastor would say, don't blame my failures on Jesus. <laughs> Don't blame my limitations on Jesus. Don't look at my faults and somehow say Jesus shares in these faults. And yet that's what the scribes are essentially doing. Why is this here? Besides the parallel, the, the obvious parallel to Moses coming down with the, the Ten Commandments, why is this here? Uh, most likely, uh, Mark knows his audience, and, and Mark knows that the church in Rome probably was struggling with their own futility, with their own sense of helplessness, and with their own failure. The recognition that they're not standing up to the power of, of oppression and persecution, that they're struggling with the power of temptation that comes from living at the heart of the Roman Empire. And they were not all that they wanted to be, and they are probably marked by conflict. And so I think there's something important that he wants to say not by, by using this historical event to speak to them, and I think by extension to us, because we also live in a time 
where we struggle with persecution, where we struggle with strife and conflict. And it's not just about an election. It's not just about COVID protocols. It goes much deeper to the heart. Those are just the excuses, so to speak, the, the, the rationale of the conflict, the manifestation of the conflict. It's not really the heart and the root of the conflicts. Like this man, like this father, people can despair as they live in their pain, as they live in their loss, oh, while disciples and experts argue. Think about that for a moment. What, what's going through the mind of this man? He just wants his son to be well, to be whole, to be restored. And these guys not only are unable to do this, but are now fighting over why they can't do this. And he's probably going, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Well, what does Jesus say? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? On the one hand, Jesus talks about the, the character, the quality of this generation. Uh, they are faithless. He's lamenting a lack of trust on behalf of this generation. That lack of trust also produces a lack of trustworthiness on their part. The, the who is really sort of unclear because Mark is just tossing out these personal pronouns. He's not really telling you who the they is. He just says they, 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 they. The disciples they, the scribes they, the crowd they, all three they, just two of them they. I think the ambiguity is on purpose. So no matter who the they might be, we might realize that we're part of the they. That we lack trust. And as a result, at times we are not trustworthy. And Jesus is lamenting just like Moses was lamenting at the foot of the, that mountain. Jesus laments at the foot of this mountain. How long must I put up with you? The perfect man is saying, how long? Must I bear with you? Similar to what we find in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There's a sense in which Jesus is saying, How long shall sin win the day? Jesus bears the weight of all that. Then there's us. 
Back to that lack of trust, that lack of trustworthiness. Uh, some of you know that I used to work at Ace Hardware when I was in my time of transition. Let's see, there should be a slide coming up. There we go. I used to wear this pin. This was, this was a, an Ace-provided pin, 100% helpful. I know. I wore it. <laughs> I, I was the least helpful hardware man in America. <laughs> I was there merely by the kindness and compassion of a friend, not because I had any expertise in plumbing or electrical or anything. And so I would inevitably have to go to someone else to get a lot of those questions. And I tried to use my intellectual abilities to remember the answer to these questions. But the volume of my questions was so great that I couldn't remember all the answers. I was the least helpful hardware man. And that's the disciples. They were, in a sense, the least helpful disciples on the face of the earth. And Jesus wonders how long. How long? And yet Jesus expresses concern for the boy. The boy that they all seem to have forgotten. The man and his son that seem to have just faded into the crowd as they fought with the scribes. The, the real reason they were fighting was gone out of their minds. And Je but Jesus is reminded and concerned. And we discover that his care runs far deeper. But as we think about how things were going at the bottom of the mountain without Jesus, we have to recognize that apart from Jesus, we are helpless to help others. That's the bottom line. We are, apart from Jesus, helpless to help others. Well, how does Jesus help the boy and his father? We see that largely in verses 20 through 27. They, as they bring the boy to him, it says that the spirit sees Jesus and immediately it convulsed the boy. This spirit wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Now, what's different from this one and all the other experiences we see uh, with Jesus and demons in Mark's gospel so far is because it's a mute spirit, it's not crying out. It's not IDing Jesus for who he is. We see that often uh, because people would misunderstand what is meant by that and expect the wrong things. But this one is silent, but no less devastating. As the boy is tossed to the ground, he's foaming at the mouth, he's shaking about, and usually when, uh, at least I'm confronted with one of these seizures, uh, you know, I'm 911, Jesus instead seems to be very calm and asks for additional information. How long has this been happening? And I'm surprised this father has his wits about him. From childhood. But it's not just this. The father gives additional detail that's even more scary. 
because it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. You see, this little boy is made in the image of God, and this unclean spirit wants to destroy the image of God. And so it doesn't just make him unable to communicate with people. It doesn't just put him through these terrifying seizures. It also tries to burn him to death and drown him. We're not sure why, precisely because the the demonic spirit would lose its host. But nonetheless, that's what sin does. It makes even demons stupid. Okay? We need to recognize, I think, that sin, just like this unclean spirit, seeks to deface and to ruin the image of God. Okay? The sin is a power. That's what it wants to do. And sin is a power, as a corruption. It turns us from men and women into beasts. Beasts ready for the slaughter. So this father cries out again. But if you can do anything, have compassion upon us and help us. But recognize a shift. It's a slight shift, but an important shift. If. I mean, the whole reason he brought this boy here in the first place is because so he wanted Jesus to do something about it, Jesus to heal the boy, Jesus to cast out the demon, and, and but now it's this, this little seed of doubt has entered in, if. Have compassion. Jesus has compassion. This man has brought his son to the the seat of compassion. He's brought him to the God of all comfort. The one who comforts in all of our affliction so that we're able to comfort others, as it talks about in 2 Corinthians 1. The God who who comforted Job. From James 5, for instance, Behold, consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. We, like to, we tend to focus on the steadfastness of Job. But what I want you to focus is on this. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's not so much about Job, it's about God compassionate and merciful. And so he's brought his son to the right person. Jesus is already expressing compassion and calling the boy to come to him and asking these questions from the father. He's expressing some compassion. He's moved to pity. But does he have power? Well, He's the same Jesus that has cast out numerous demons already in this gospel account that we have from Mark. Of course he has the power. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But Jesus stops before he he 
grants this request, if you can. All things are possible for the ones who for the one who believes. He uses the same verb and the same sort of uh, the same way as a participle that we find in John three sixteen. The one who believes. The problem isn't Jesus. Jesus has the power to heal. The problem is that Jesus does only responds to faith. The idea, again, is not that the faith heals the boy, but that Jesus will respond to the faith of the Father. Now, note that for a second. We're going to have a baptism. For some people, baptism is about the faith of the person who's baptized. This boy is about to have a demon cast out of him, not because of his faith, but the faith of his father. It's a similar situation, I think, when it comes to the baptismal waters. Because baptism is not a sign of that you have faith. Baptism is a sign that we are declared righteous on the basis of faith as we see with regard to circumcision in Romans 4. But all things are possible when one believes. Jesus identifies the core issue right now as one of faith. He's saying, trust me, and I'll do it. He works when he's trusted. But we see other examples of of times in, in Mark's gospel where Jesus isn't trusted, and so Jesus doesn't act. Faith is an instrument. It is the instrument, not of baptism, but it certainly is the instrument of what we call justification, the forgiveness of sin, and the, the granting of right of Christ's righteousness to those who believe. Let's not confuse the sign with the declaration. And so the dad cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. The best of us is a mixture of belief and unbelief. In other words, this guy's not strange. We tend to think of faith as a binary thing. Either you have it or you don't. And that's really not the way it is. If we're honest, we have, we have faith, and yet we also have these pockets in our heart of unbelief. Where I'm trusting God to do this, but I'm not necessarily trusting God to do that. We talked about that in our Sunday school class a little bit as we talk about a culture of reconciliation. And we can believe that Jesus forgives our sins, 
But we don't necessarily believe the commands of Jesus to go and be reconciled one to another. Do you understand what I'm saying now? That's what happens. There's faith and unbelief in our hearts. See how desperately we need help? The father confesses his need not only for help with his son, but he confesses his need for help for himself to more fully believe. And apparently he believed enough (laughs) because Jesus rebukes the demon. And what we find is that not only is it a, a, a demon of muteness, but also of deafness. But what happens is he casts it out permanently. Not just leave, but also leave and never return. One of the things that's interesting, and you only know about this because of Josephus' antiquities, but supposedly... Solomon had a similar gift with regard to exorcism. I don't know where in the world Josephus got this idea, (laughs) but Josephus talks about it. as He had the power to cast out a demon and not come back, and Jesus, who is the greater Solomon, has a greater gift. The pain of the boy continues until the demon leaves. But what's emphasized here with the use of two different words is that the boy looks dead. Death. It looks like the demon won. He's unresponsive. And everyone is thinking the worst. And then Jesus reaches down and takes the boy's hand and pulls him up. And what's interesting is that just as there are two different words used to convey the appearance of death for this boy, that he's like a corpse, there are two different words that are used that are used with regard to resurrection as well. This raising up. That Jesus is able to make the dead live. Jesus is able to make the spiritually dead live. And that's a picture of baptism that, you know, that baptism paints for us as well, that the dying and rising of Jesus accomplishes our dying to sin and our being raised up to newness of life. Jesus makes dead sinners live saints. And we should rejoice. But the words that are used here are identical to the words we find in Mark 5 with um, Jairus' daughter. Jesus takes her by the hand, says, arise, and the girl gets up and begins to walk. Now, she was literally dead, biologically dead. This boy was not. But both are pictures of of the coming resurrection from the dead. 
that Jesus, Jesus accomplishes by his dying and his rising out of the dead that he's been starting to talk about with his disciples. And so Jesus helps us by setting us free from Satan's reign. Well, where does this leave the disciples? And I think we see this from verse 19, verse 24, and then 28 and 29. Uh, let's start with the last part of that. The disciples wonder. They, they go to the house they've been staying in. Okay? And so they're away from the crowd. And they're, they're a little honest and humble with Jesus. Why could we not cast it out? You know, we use the right words. <laughs> we use the words that you taught us, Jesus. We, we did it the right way. How come we couldn't do it? They feel their failure. His response, I think, assumes what we find in 19 and 24. In other words, it assumes Jesus' words earlier as well as the Father's earlier statements about faith. This kind, speaking of the unclean spirit, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But you'll notice Mark didn't mention anything about prayer on the part of Jesus. It's his sheer authority as the eternal Son of God that this demon has to obey. But for the disciples, it required not just faith, but prayer. Their lack of faith, you might say, is disturbing. And so is ours. The remaining unbelief that's in our hearts is the root of our sin. I was wondering when that thing was going to pop up. <laughs> Took a while. That's okay. The system's a little slow on the, on the uptake at times. Okay? But the point is, is that we remain stuck in besetting sins in part because just like the disciples, we're relying on our own power, our own effort. Okay? We remain stuck in besetting sins in part because we are not trusting in Christ to work. So it's both, both sides of this equation. Okay. Why does Jesus mention prayer? And some manuscripts have and fasting. Those are not the most reliable manuscripts. But if you have like a King James, you're going to see and fasting. Okay. You'll look at a little footnote in your ESV and it'll have it there. Okay. But both prayer and fasting are expressions of dependence. And therefore, they are expressions of Faith. When we think of uh, James 5, when it talks about the prayer of faith, uh, how that is functioning is the prayer that is, that's the source of the prayer is faith. The one who's not praying out of doubt, but the one who's expressing faith in that prayer, he is the one who was healed and raised up. And so prayer here is intended to be 
an expression of faith, however meager. It's the recognition, I think, that, that we need to feed our faith, not to feed our flesh or our doubt. And so uh, this week, uh, you know, before Amy and I fought on our walk, we, we, this was a different day, we, uh, we saw this car, and I took a picture of this car. Um, it's, it's all about tattoos, I think, but still, I think the point comes across. Don't feed your flesh. Don't feed your temptations. Don't feed your doubt. Don't, don't sit there and stew on your doubts and your fears and turn them over in your minds. You need to feed your faith by returning to the Word of God so that you fret not, as we were looking at in Psalm 37 and you know, on the back porch with Steve. Okay, Feed your faith with the Word of God so that you remember what He's done in the past and what He promises to do in the future. Even the things that He's promised to do in the present. Okay? Feed that. Recognizing that apart from faith, it is impossible to please God, as the author of Hebrews said. Without faith, we wander. Without faith, we flounder. Without faith, we fret. And so feed your faith, as I said, not only with the Word of God, but also feed your faith with prayer. Which is why we have 100 psalms. Sorry, 150. 50 of them. Thereabouts are really positive. (laughs) But no, that's the point. We have to learn to express these things to God. And he's given us a book of songs to learn how to do that. To learn how to pray. To learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves in the midst of our fears. Whether it's in the midst of our guilt. All of these things. It's in there. Feed your faith. I would say we could feed it with fasting. Reminding ourselves that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so maybe you need to fast from those things that stir up your fear. Or fast from the food that you seek to comfort yourself with instead of the Word of God. In other words, Jesus gives us faith through these various means of grace. So when I talk about feed your faith, that's what I mean. Utilizing the means of grace so that you're trusting him more fully than you did before you engaged in those means of grace. That that pocket of unbelief in your heart has shrunk a little bit. And so Jesus helps us by giving us the faith we need. So the disciples without Jesus were like Israel without Moses when he was up on the mountain, helpless to resist the demonic and the and temptation. Perhaps the church of Rome to whom Mark wrote was just like that, torn by strife, feeling helpless in the face of persecution, feeling helpless 
to resist the allure of the world and power. And too often that has been the experience of the church and churches and saints. What we discover is that Jesus is in fact full of compassion and full of power, but he helps not simply by exercising his power, but also by building our faith in his compassion and power. He gave us the scriptures so that we would trust him and learn what it looks like to be trustworthy as well. He reminds us that to believe is not simply a binary thing. It's either yes or no, but that faith is fed not only by the word, but through prayer and fasting. Uh, Not expressions of our independence upon God, but instead expressions of our dependence upon God. So what will you do when you're weary from failure? What are you going to do when you're weary from conflict? What are you going to do when you're tired of temptation? Jesus invites us again to come unto him and to find rest for our souls because it's only in him that we find compassion and that we find power, particularly the power to give us more faith. And I think we all need a bunch of that. So, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you know that we are but ash, only ash, that has been given life by you, but that we are weak, we are frail, we are easily overcome. And I thank you that you don't turn away from us in the midst of that, but that is a means by which you reveal more and more about the fact that you are compassionate, that your heart is turned towards your people who struggle with sin, to alleviate our burdens, and to grant us rest. And so help us to rest in Jesus. Help us to trust him more fully. And and as a result of that trust, to follow more closely and be more trustworthy. But it all starts with trusting him. So Father, help us to grow in our faith. Because it matters in what we, how we live at home and how we live at work and how we live here at church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.